Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Thank you, Dave, for leading us in prayer this morning. Uh, It's good to be back in Muncie. I spent the better part of this past week in Louisville, Kentucky, at our denomination's General Assembly. That's an annual gathering. Uh, Just dealing with denominational issues, I don't intend to give you a summary of the proceedings at this year's General Assembly at this point in time, but I will write a Lifeline article that you can read about uh, next Sunday, just in case you're interested as to what, what goes on and what specifically went on at this past General Assembly. But it is good to be back. Uh, parents, if you choose to dismiss your children for Children's Church, you can do so at this time. Otherwise, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I ask that you open them to the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew chapter 27. And we're going to wrap up a, a very brief uh, month-long series where we've been considering the theme of the suffering and passion of Jesus. We'll wrap that up this morning with Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 and 46. So just a couple real short uh, verses Uh, This morning, Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46. If you found that, please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli. Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the word of God, praise be to him. You may be seated. You know, some questions are really hard to answer. Like, what does the color yellow taste like? Or what does the sound of a car horn look like? Now, of course, these questions are just simply nonsense uh, and can't be answered at all. But you may have heard someone ask you a question, whether God is so powerful, if he could lift or if he could make a rock so heavy that even he can't lift it. Now, what do you, what do, you do with a question like that? And you may yourself have asked a question like this. If God could have prevented the fall, why didn't he? Why does God allow so much evil and suffering in the world? That's a very difficult and perplexing question. And we have another difficult question posed by Jesus in our text this morning as he utters these words in the darkest hours. And his question is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now we have to be really careful here if we're going to consider this question. Because if he asks the question, can we really answer it? We have to be cautious that we not say too much about unraveling the mystery of this question that Jesus asks on the cross. G. Campbell Morgan, who was a pastor in the early 1900s in London, uh, wrote this. He said, Nothing can be known of that mystery of pain except from himself. Any attempt to go beyond this limit is a mistaken attempt. 
and borders upon the realm of unholy intrusion. And so we have to be careful that we don't try to peer too closely or get too deep into trying to discover the answer of Jesus' question. But at the same time, G. Campbell Morgan himself goes on to write that we cannot understand the atoning work of Jesus unless we're willing to contemplate the meaning of the question Jesus asks. And so while we can't understand everything of this question that Jesus asks, that's not to say we can't understand anything. To know in part is not to know nothing at all. And, and so we can only know in part, but we can know in part because the Spirit and the Word interpret for us the event of the cross. The Spirit and the Word interpret for us what's going on at the cross. And because the Spirit and the Word does that, we can move past questions that cannot be answered to arrive at answers that cannot be questioned. And that's where we want to move this morning. And in moving toward those answers, I want us to examine three things that we find in this text, in these very brief two verses. We find darkness, we find desertion, and we find deliverance. So those are the three things I want to look at with you this morning, beginning with darkness. We read in Mark's account, chapter 15, verse 25, that Jesus was crucified at the third hour. The third hour would have been 9 o'clock in the morning. The third hour is 9 o'clock in the morning. And then we read from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, which if you can do your math, that's from noon to 3 in the afternoon. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, Jesus is on the cross from noon to three. There apparently is silence. We don't read of any recorded words uttered by Jesus or anybody else in those three hours. But we can only guess that there's silence. There's certainly darkness that covers the land from noon to three. Matthew's gospel tells us that. So, so make sure you understand this. At the time the sun would have been at its highest and should have been shining most brightly and intensely, the land is covered with darkness. Now, according to some early church fathers, this darkness at the time that Jesus was crucified was a matter of public record in the Roman Empire. In fact, one of the early church fathers, Tertullian, if you know who that is, wrote in defense of the Christian faith to Roman Gentiles that at the moment of Christ's death, the light departed from the sun and the land was darkened at noonday. A wonder which is related in your own records and is preserved in your own archives to this day. Now, whether or not it really was a matter of public record throughout the Roman Empire uh, is, is one thing, but the import, even more important than that, than being a matter of public record, it's a matter of biblical record. And so we believe that this darkness actually happened. Three of the four gospel writers record this occurrence of darkness. Three out of the four gospel writers tell us that this darkness happened, but none of the gospel writers tell us the meaning of this darkness. Why was it dark? And there's actually a variety of explanations uh, offered to uh, get behind this occurrence of darkness. And one explanation is that creation is sharing in sympathy and in mourning as the one who... through whom all things were created, is being put to death. It's almost as if 
the whole creation is dressing itself for a funeral, putting on a black dress, if you will, as the one through whom all things were created is being crucified. Others have suggested that the darkness is a sign against those who crucified Jesus, that it's a sign against those who crucified Jesus. And others still say that this darkness is simply symbolic, that the light of the world, as Jesus referred to himself, is being put out. And there may be merit to, to one of these or all of these, but, but I would suggest that it's important that the darkness best be understood as an aspect of Christ's suffering. The darkness is an element or an aspect of the suffering of Jesus. It's part of the passion narrative. The things that are going on here are related to the suffering and passion of Jesus. And the darkness is best understood as that. We could say it this way. Symbolically, what is, what is, what is being portrayed here visibly is that Jesus is being thrust into the darkness. It's not just that creation grows dark. Jesus is in darkness. We might even say, symbolically, he is thrust into the outer darkness. Language that he himself employed to refer to what? To hell. The outer darkness. Hell is a place of darkness. It's interesting that earlier in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reminds his listeners that God causes his sun to shine on the evil and the good. But the sun does not shine on Jesus on the cross. Light is withheld from him here. And I would argue that Jesus here is suffering the darkness of the apocalyptic judgment that was anticipated by the Old Testament prophets when they looked forward to the day of the Lord. Let me say that again. Jesus is experiencing here the darkness of the apocalyptic judgment that was anticipated by the Old Testament prophets when they looked forward to the day of the Lord, which would be a day where God's wrath was poured out upon sinners. The Old Testament prophets look forward to this day of the Lord and they describe it as a day of darkness. Listen to what Amos writes. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? That's a lengthy passage. I I, I fit it all on one PowerPoint, so I hope you can read it. But I want you to follow along as I read Zephaniah chapter 1, who's also writing of the day of the Lord. And, And listen for these themes of darkness and judgment upon sinners, as Zephaniah writes. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. That's what's anticipated on the day of the Lord, a day of darkness where sinners are judged. 
And what's happening at the cross as it grows dark for three hours is Jesus is experiencing the darkness of judgment on the day of the Lord as he is in the place of sinners. He's bearing the sin of his people, and so it's him that suffers that darkness of the day of the Lord. And understanding the darkness this way might also help us understand the desertion. So I want to look at that second, desertion. We read about desertion in these verses. Matthew tells us that it was about the ninth hour. So after three hours of apparent silence and certainly darkness, the silence is broken by a loud cry. Now, isn't it always alarming to have periods of silence broken by a shout? Hey! See, I mean, we're not even in a room of silence, and that was jarring for most of you to hear a loud shout. But it's not just the loud cry that would have been alarming. It was a cry of this kind of content, a cry of anguish and despair from the lips of Jesus when he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's actually misinterpreted by those who are there, if you go on and read your text. But when we hear the question, on some level, we realize that we can relate. We can relate to the question, why? It's been asked repeatedly throughout the centuries uh, for those who, through life's disappointments and grief and pain, are left empty and confused and ask the question, why, God? Now, we might regard the question as somewhat irreverent, but keep in mind, it's those who have the strongest convictions and are most conscious of not only the fact that there is a God who exists, but that this God is sovereign over all things and his character is one of love and justice and wisdom. It's these people that tend to ask the question most often. The psalmists and the prophets ask the question frequently. Job asks the question. Jesus asks the question. And in the face of God's providence, sometimes you ask the question, and I ask the question, why, God? That the appearance of travesty in the government of the universe unsettles us. Especially those of us who believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. Doesn't it, doesn't it bother you on some level that it's God's fingerprints that are found at the scene of every disaster and calamity? Don't you have to conclude that on some level when you believe in the sovereignty of God? And doesn't that jar you a little bit? Don't you feel sometimes like the eyes of faith are being poked out simply by looking at God's providence and what's happening in the world under his sovereign control? I mean, right here at the cross, injustice is triumphing. Righteousness is being defeated. I mean, doesn't, doesn't God care that Caiaphas is on the throne as the high priest when the true high priest is hanging on a cross? I mean, what do we make of the fact that Barabbas, who has blood on his hands, goes free, and the innocent one is the one in the place of the guilty, condemned to die on the cross? It just seems that everything is the reverse of what it should be in a just universe and a just government. And when we are confronted with that, 
we ask the question, why God? But Jesus isn't exactly asking that question. He's asking more than that question. Jesus' question isn't just, why God? It's very specific. It's, why have you forsaken me? And what are we to make of this question that he asked? As we mentioned a couple weeks ago, instead of expressing peace in God's presence as he faced death, as many of the early Christian martyrs have done, as, many, as, as, as well as Christians throughout the centuries have, have had that peace, Jesus doesn't have that peace. In the midst of it, he feels forsaken and asks, why? And what are we to make of the question? Well, it seems to be indisputable that Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. We've heard that read already this morning. He's quoting Psalm 22, the first verse of Psalm 22. But why does he do so? Why does he quote, or perhaps he sang it? Psalms were meant to be sung. Jesus is quoting Scripture or singing scripture from the cross. But why does he do so? And it may surprise you to learn that there have been different interpretations of why Jesus quotes Psalm 22. There are some who suggest that Jesus is reciting Psalm 22 here as a statement of disillusionment. That Jesus can't believe, he's shocked and surprised that his mission to establish the kingdom is going to end this way in failure, and that the God he has served has abandoned him, and that work will not be accomplished. And he's expressing disillusionment and surprise. But for those of us that that believe the scriptures and are reading them carefully, can't really adopt this particular interpretation, especially in light of the fact that Jesus predicts his own death numerous times and how he's going to die, as well as his struggle in the agony of Gethsemane. This is not a tenable explanation. Others have suggested that Jesus was not actually forsaken on the cross by the Father, but he felt forsaken. And in this feeling of being forsaken, he quotes the first verse of Psalm 22. But they would argue that because because the Father could not have really forsaken the Son, that this was just a subjective statement made by Jesus and didn't have any roots in objective reality. He just felt forsaken, so he quotes Psalm 22. Others actually have maintained that this quotation is actually a cry of hope and victory. And you might say, well, how can somebody conclude that on the basis of what we read in Matthew 27? Well, the principle adopted in this particular interpretation is that oftentimes when Old Testament passages are quoted in the New Testament, it's the entire context of the Old Testament passage that's in view. And and while Psalm 21 does begin with this cry of being forsaken, it moves forward. In fact, verse 24 of Psalm 22 says this, For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. So some would argue that Jesus has this in mind, even though he just quotes the first verse. And there may be some merit to this. I mean, certainly Jesus was aware of the entire context and movement of Psalm 22. And so there may be something in this, but it seems that the most straightforward reading of of what we have in Matthew in the quotation of Psalm 22, verse 1, is that Jesus is actually crying out, in distress, that he's forsaken of the Father. 
objectively, really, and truly forsaken by the Father. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus had been forsaken in general. He's been forsaken by others before. Uh, We read in the Gospels that his family on one occasion actually thought that he was insane. They thought he was crazy. Uh, His own people from Nazareth one time tried to throw him over a cliff because they rejected him. The Jewish leaders have rejected him. His disciples had fled from him. He's been forsaken by many before, but through all of these instances of being forsaken, he always had one resource, one faithful father to whom he could turn and find acceptance as the son with whom the father was well pleased. He always had that in unbroken fashion. And he spoke confidently of the presence of his father, always with him, Actually, just hours before this, on the night of his arrest, in the upper room when he's talking to his disciples, he says this. It's recorded in John 16, 32. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet, I am not alone, for the Father is with me. That's what he says just before his arrest in Gethsemane. And now, here, Matthew 27, the hour has come. And where is the Father? Now the hour has come. Where is the Father? Jesus finds himself drowning. And there's no solid ground upon which he can place his feet and stop his descent. And no angel intervenes. The Father sends no miracle. And there's no voice that halts the sacrifice like the voice that halted the sacrifice of Isaac when Abraham was called to take him and sacrifice him. And remember, God calls out, Abraham, Abraham, and stops the sacrifice. But no voice from the Father here. Jesus is abandoned to death. He is forsaken by the Father. Now, of course, a cry of distress, of really being forsaken, is not the same as a cry of distrust. Jesus does cry out, my God. It's not a cry of distrust, but it is a cry of distress at being forsaken. At the same time, he doesn't cry out, my Father. Of course, it's hard to know how much to make of any of this language because he's quoting a psalm. So we're not quite sure how much to make of it. As he quotes a psalm, it's interesting, as, as Kyle read earlier, the psalm speaks of so much that's happening at the cross that a non-Christian has one time written that it's almost as if a Christian wrote Psalm 22. A non-Christian wrote that. It's almost as if a Christian wrote Psalm 22. And I would assert that one did. The Spirit of Christ inspiring the writing of Psalm 22 to point forward to the cross because Jesus isn't just reciting Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is being fulfilled at the cross as Jesus is crucified and utters these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Expressing this objective condition of Jesus being forsaken. But if it's the case that Jesus is forsaken, how is it that we can speak of deliverance? And that's the third point this morning. How is it that we can even speak of deliverance? Because certainly Jesus isn't delivered here in this hour. He continues to suffer and he dies this death of crucifixion. Why isn't he delivered? Why is Jesus not delivered 
from this agonizing death. Well, again, we need the whole scriptures to shed light on what's happening here. The scriptures interpret the event of the cross for us. And Isaiah anticipates it when he writes, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And we've already read the assurance of pardon this morning uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. What's happening here, and the reason Jesus isn't delivered from this forsakenness, is because he's bearing our sin. And as the sin bearer, sin separates from God. Sin separates someone from God. In fact, we can even say this. Sin is a kind of forsaking God. Sin is a kind of forsaking God. And the harvest of that sin that forsakes God is to be God forsaken. We could say it this way if you're not following. God forsakenness is the penalty for the sin that forsakes God. The sin that forsakes God is brought to full harvest when one is left forsaken by God. And to be forsaken by God is to be in hell. To be utterly forsaken by God is to be in hell. Now, no person in this room has ever really been utterly forsaken by God. No one in this life has ever really been forsaken by God, utterly and truly. Because by a common grace, God creates life. He sustains life. He nurtures life. He sends rains for provision. He satisfies appetites. He gives sight. He gives hearing. He gives strength. He gives occasions for joy and he gives great blessing to believer and unbeliever alike. All of us have experienced that kind of common grace. We have no idea what it would be like to be utterly and completely forsaken by God because we're the recipients of so much of his goodness and mercy and favor by way of a common grace. But actually there is one person who knows what it is in this life to be utterly forsaken by God, Jesus. There is one person who knows, Jesus, who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's hell. Jesus is experiencing the torments of hell in the darkest hours on the cross. As a German scholar uh, has written, God was now dealing with Jesus, not as a loving and merciful father with his child, but as an offended and righteous judge with an evildoer. He's dealing with Jesus as a righteous and offended judge as one would judge, as one would deal with an evildoer. But he's doing that because Jesus is bearing the sins of his people. Now, I would hold that there was no interruption with the love between the Father and Jesus as the Son. No interruption at any point in the love the Father had for Jesus as the Son. But the Father does really and truly turn away from Jesus as the substitute and as the sin bearer. 
There are some Trinitarian issues that draw me to that conclusion. But if you were to ask me to explain how that works, how that could be, that there really was no interruption between the love that the Father had for Jesus as the Son, but there was an interruption with the Father's love toward Jesus as the sin bearer, I can't explain that. I can offer no other rational explanation for holding that. But even though I can't explain it, can I rejoice in it? Yes. I can rejoice in that mystery. And the reason that I can rejoice is because Jesus is here suffering the punishment for my sin. This is how I deserve to be treated. My blood deserves to be poured out. I deserve to suffer the wrath of the day of the Lord. I deserve the sentence of death as the wages of my sin. I deserve to be thrust into the outer darkness forever because of my sin. But the good news of the gospel is that God punished Jesus in my place. That's the gospel. That's the good news. God punished Jesus in my place. So the deliverance that we speak of here is not Jesus' deliverance, though he is risen from the dead three days later. But the deliverance we're speaking of here is not Jesus' deliverance, it's ours. Because Jesus was forsaken, those who believe in him never will be. In a way that we cannot fathom and never will be able to, Jesus experienced the darkest hours, so we'll never have to. In fact, we can know that we'll never be forsaken, not only in the darkest hour, we'll never be forsaken for a single moment because of what Jesus has endured in these darkest hours of being forsaken. I don't recall a lot as a kid uh, from kindergarten down. I just, I don't have a lot of memories. I have a few memories. Uh, But one of the memories I do have growing up in rural Huntington County until I was five years old was that my mother would sometimes make arrangements for me for the school bus to drop me off in in a little town called Mount Etna. Does anybody know where Mount Etna is? Uh, I would be dropped off at this really small store called Joe and Peg's in Mount Etna, and my grandfather would be there waiting for me. And perhaps the reason I remember this so vividly is because every time that my mom would make those arrangements and the bus would pull up at, at Joe and Peg's, I would be terrified. I was terrified that I was going to be abandoned and left alone and forsaken because my grandfather wasn't going to be there. But to my relief, every time I got off the bus, my grandfather was waiting for me inside. Now, how much more confident can we be that we're not going to be abandoned, we're not going to be left alone, and we're not going to be forsaken by our Heavenly Father when we hear Jesus crying out in our place, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he said that, we never have to say that. We never have to fear that we'll be forsaken. David once declared in Psalm 37, he said, I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. But we have once. We have seen the righteous forsaken once. And that brings us the good news of the gospel. 
He was forsaken for a season that we might enjoy God's presence forever. He entered into that darkness so that we might walk in light. He drank that cup of wrath so that the cup that we drink is overflowing with blessing and joy. He was forsaken that we might be forgiven and he was deserted to the darkness that we might be delivered. But in order to be delivered, we do have to look in faith to Jesus and we do have to live for him. Because if God did not spare his own son who was made to be sin, don't think the father is going to spare the sinner who remains in his or her sins. Jesus suffered the torments of hell for three hours on the cross. But those who continue to reject the good news of the gospel and put their faith in Jesus will suffer in the outer darkness forever. But there is a way of escape. There is the offer of the gospel. And for those who believe, a German guy by the name of F.W. Krumacher writes this. It's a lengthy quote. I'm put it on two separate screens, but I want to read it to you because I believe it will be an encouragement to you. Krumacher writes, There can be no idea that those who are united to Christ by the bonds of a living faith can be really forsaken of God. No cloud can darken heaven where God will never depart from us. Whatever else may forsake us, though we may be abandoned by the world's favor, the friendship of men, earthly prosperity, and bodily strength, though we may even be bereft of the feeling of God's nearness and the freshness of the inward life of faith, yet God himself always continues near and favorably inclined to us in Christ. And he goes on to say, however strangely he may sometimes act toward us, into whatever furnace of affliction he may plunge us, however completely he may seem withdrawn from our consciousness, we can boldly assert that he will never forsake us because the Son binds us forever to the Father through his separation. Isn't that a comfort to you, to know that? Because you have dark hours, but you are not forsaken in the midst of them. The gospel brings us great comfort. Uh, there's a term used in combat sports, like uh, mixed martial arts, called tapping out. Uh, it's when uh, an opponent is under such severe pain, distress, agony, they're in a hold, they can't get out, and they just want to end it, and so they, they tap out, and it ends it. It ends the match, it's over, they're done with their pain, they're done with their suffering. And I'm generally not one uh, that's given to t-shirt, cliche Christianity, but when I was in St. Louis last year on the missions trip, uh, a young lady was wearing a shirt and the shirt said, Jesus never tapped out. And as we think about the suffering and the passion of Christ, we can't affirm that. Jesus never tapped out, though he endured pain and agony that we cannot even begin to imagine as the righteous one who bore the sins of his people and was forsaken by his father but he never tapped out. And it's an expression of amazing love because the reason he didn't is because he was so committed to his people that he's willing to suffer that. Jesus was willing to go through hell in order to rescue his bride and a bride as undeserving as we are. That is the greatest love story ever told. It's such amazing love and it's right for us to sing of that amazing love. And we're going to do that in just a second, but let's close in prayer. Uh, Father, we do confess that your love for us is amazing. We thank you, Jesus, for enduring the darkest hours that we might live in light and have life. And Father, we rejoice and you are worthy of all of our worship. 
You are our redeemer, and we bring you our praise. Help us to live for you uh, in all things, knowing that you are forever with us. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name, amen.